What up, English 3322 folks? Como van? Como están? How are you guys doing? Uh, today we're going to be talking about Gloria Anzaldúa, uh, specifically the borderlands, La Frontera, the new Mestiza, uh, in chapters one and two. Uh, if you don't know Gloria Anzaldúa already, she is one of the seminal figures of, if not the seminal figure, of Chicano, Chicana, uh, Chicanex literature. Um, she passed, sadly, in 2004, um, but she was a huge uh, philosopher, writer, uh, critic on, uh, on queer theory, uh, but also sort of you know, the origins of, you know, what is Chicano? Where do we come from? What is the through line? What makes our literature American literature? And so I think she's a really uh, fascinating and germane, uh, you know, like postamble, not a preamble, but a postamble to uh, Natalie Diaz's postcolonial love poem. And I love putting those works in conversation with each other. Uh, but especially, uh, you know, I think too of along of like the way in which we have a through line between Cabeza de Vaca, Natalie Diaz, and this book um, from three different eras, right? Interrogating three different periods. Uh, but I think just as, uh, I don't know, the conversation is is salient among them. Uh, and I feel like uh, Gloria Anzaldúa does something in this book that I think is sort of, uh, it's fascinating, it's commendable. She draws a through line between the origin story of, you know, early foundations of the, you know, indigenous people. She says the furthest back you can find is in Texas. 20,000 years ago, earliest settlements, direct descendants of the Cochise people from the Aztecans all the way up to the, uh, I said Aztecans, uh, I guess. <laughs> I was thinking Kualuitecans, but the Aztecs, uh, all the way up through uh, to, uh, you know, uh, the founding of Mexico as a, you know, is sort of this merge, this painful birth of a colonial power uh, through, um, you know, the both the loss of Texas and then, again, the sort of loss of large parts of Mexico due to the Mexican-American War in 1848. And then uh, uh, later on, uh, you know, she talks about sort of like the way in which corporations have continued that, that colonization. I think it's a really, it's an interesting line and it's an interesting arc a narrative arc that she draws in this first chapter, uh, which I'll focus on first and then and then talk about the, the second chapter. But before I do any of that, um, hold on. These headphones are bothering me. I'm going to take these off real quick. I don't know if you guys can hear me. Okay. So this is actually better without the headphones. I have these noise-canceling headphones that sometimes they drown out everything else in the room. And I can't, I, it sounds weird, but I don't know what the room sounds like. It's, it's some recording stuff. But I, I get really bent out of shape. Sometimes it's worse to monitor yourself than it is to just take the headphones off. Anyway, so Gloria Anzaldúa, an American scholar, Chicana cultural theory, uh, feminist theory, and uh, queer uh, theory uh, writer, uh, theorist. She loosely um, based her best-known book, Borderlands uh, La Frontera, the New Mestiza, on her life growing up on the, ne on the Mexico-Texas border and incorporated her lifelong experiences of social and cultural marginalization into her work. She also developed theories about the marginal, in-between, and mixed cultures that develop along the borders. Uh, themes uh, in her writing are Nepantlism. Anzaldúa drew on Nepantla, a Nahuatl word that means, quote, in the middle, 
to conceptualize her experience as a Chicana woman. She coined the term Nepantlera. Nepantleras are threshold people. They move within and among uh, multiple, often conflicting worlds and refuse to align themselves exclusively with any single individual group or belief system. Uh, Anzaldúa described herself as a very spiritual person and stated that she experienced four, quote, out-of-body experiences during her lifetime. In many of her works, she referred to her devotion to La Virgen de Guadalupe, or Lady of Guadalupe, Nahual Totec divinities, and to the Yoruba Orishas, Yamaya and Oshun. In 1993, she expressed regret that scholars had largely ignored the, quote, unsafe spiritual aspects of borderlands and bemoaned the resistance to such an important part of her work. In her later writings, she developed the concepts of spiritual activism and Nepantleras to describe their ways uh, contemporary social actors can combine spirituality with politics to enact revolutionary change. Uh, she introduces the concept of linguistic terrorism, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the health of the body, mestizaje, uh, the border culture. Uh, we talked a little bit about that sort of like this, this merging of cultures, uh, which really she gets into in the first chapter. Sexuality, feminism, among other things in this in this book. Um, but yeah, it is something that's interesting. You know, I didn't know this uh, uh, before doing research for this podcast for today, but uh, I am fascinated that uh, scholars largely did ignore the spiritual aspect of this book because it is everywhere. Uh, and it's a major trope. And it's something maybe we might interrogate in this. I can try my best to do it. But she talks about sort of there's a sort of... Uh, you know, the borderlands as a as a shock culture, a third culture, a kind of third body. There's a spiritual element to that, I do think. Anyway, um, let's start with uh, the homeland, Atlan, El Otro Mexico. Well, before we even do that, though, I think it's kind of important. I do want to do this um, where... I, I know it wasn't assigned uh, that you guys should have read the preamble or the preface, uh, but I do think it's important. I'm going to start here on the preface, right before Atravesado Fronteras, Crossing Borders. Um, in the last graph of that preface, uh, she has this thing where she says, the switching of codes in this book, from English to Castilian Spanish to the North Mexican dialect to Tex-Mex to a sprinkling of Nahuatl to a mixture of all of these, reflects my language. A new language, the language of the borderlands. There at the juncture of cultures, languages cross-pollinate and are revitalized. They die and are born. Presently, this infant language, this bastard language, Chicano Spanish, is not approved by any society. But we Chicanos no longer feel that we need to beg entrance, that we need always to make the first overture, to translate to Anglos, Mexicans, and Latinos, apology blurting out of our mouths with every step. Today we ask to be met halfway. This book is our invitation to you from the new Mestizas. I love that sort of preface, uh, and it is Gloria Anzalua who is prefacing it, because um, it really does get at this idea of like the Nepantla, right? This, this in-between, uh, which I think is also so, sort of a border space. Um, and I can kind of see where she's talking about spirituality as, as something that, that needs to be interrogated within this book, because... To be a Napantla, the new mestiza, is to inhabit this sort of like this Nepantlera sort of uh, you know ideology, or, to, or not to, not to inherit, inhabit it, but to own it. Really, uh, I think what she's saying is it's organic to us by nature. There's so much of the world that, and really, I think Rodin Zaldúa would 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 
agree when she says there's even so much of the colonial world, the colonized world, that demands that we uh, we put things into binaries, right? Uh, that we put things into sort of this or that. You are American or you're Mexican. You're European or you are, um, you know, indigenous. You are, um, you know, you are Chicano or you are Mexican, right? But she's saying Chicano, this sort of Nepantla, is this this feeling of thirdness. Uh, the reason it's it's there's a there's a question I think that, that launches this book, which is that if that offends somebody, why is it offensive, right? Uh, and does it come from the same place in the heart as like shooting them? And I genuinely mean that. Like we think of colonialism as an act of uh, of, of oppression, as an act of subjugation. Uh, and we haven't read the scholars for this class, but there's a lot of evidence suggests that that's true, right? You have Gramsci, you have uh, Fanon, who, who talk about the idea of the oppressor uh, and the idea that like it, to to oppress or to colonize is a is a violent thing. Um, to tell someone they are this or that, that they are pocho or not pocho, that they are, um, you know, Mexican or not Mexican, um, or that they existed or didn't exist, right? And she talks about this, and literally the first chapter is writing ourselves into the uh, um, into the history of the Southwest, which she, she argues is the oldest part of the North American continent. We were here, and we have always been here, right? That kind of thing. Um, I think. I think what she's getting at here is is uh, it is a political act to and a spiritual act by virtue of uh, by virtue well by virtue of it being a spiritual act. It is a political act, I should say, um, to inhabit that third space and to complicate the narrative to go against those binaries that say you must be this or this this or this, and have a firm answer. I am this, right? Why is it that so much of our security or so much of our um, angst or anxieties about what it means to be Mexican-American or American-Mexican or Chicano or whatever it is uh, resides on us being split along this border? You know, I think what she's saying is there's an ideological or a philosophical or a spiritual border within one, the Napantla, right? That is also a third space um, that is a shock culture, uh, other theorists might call it a contact zone, a spirit, a place where two disparate things meet, uh, and it would make sense actually when I think about it that you know that you would, you know, at once be, you know, pray to La Virgen de Guadalupe, but then also to um, uh, Toltec gods as well, uh, or or uh, you know or other sort of deities, right? There's a sort of a thirdness there, and she's cobbling together even her own religion, right? And I think there's so much of this book that's doing that. Um, let's dive in. Uh, first, real quick, though, I'm like looking at the monitors. Let me make sure this thing's recording. I'll be back, okay? Okay, I'm back. Okay. Okay. The levels are working. Um, one of my favorite fun facts about this um, book is that it actually doesn't open with the words of... Uh, Gloria and Zaldúa, but it actually opens with words of uh, Los Tigres del Norte, which is a, a band, a sort of like a conjunto Tejano band. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool because it's called like the New Mestizaje, and I love that she opens with sort of like uh, this line, El otro México que acá 
hemos construido, the other Mexico that uh, here we have constructed, el espacio es lo que ha sido. Uh, the spaces has been territorio nacional, uh, national territory. Este es el esfuerzo de todos nuestros hermanos y latinoamericanos que han sabido progresar. This is the effort of all of our brothers uh, and Latin Americans that have known how to progress or to get ahead uh, or to construct. Um, the, 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 the use of progresar is, is used a little poetically here because it can mean a lot of different things, meaning we progress or it can also mean that we, we had an, a part in building this, right? Um, which is essentially what this first chapter is about. Um, this first chapter is really an origin story of sorts. Gloria Anzaldúa is not only giving us a, a sense of where we as Mexican-Americans come from, uh, and she, she draws a line to sort of like the indigenous people that inhabit in Texas, uh, specifically the Cochise, and then the sort of like Aztecs who she says, you know, come from, uh, Aztec just means that they come from a place called Atzlan, right? which was historically the Southwest. And she says, you know, migration is, is always been within our nature, you know, to walk along by foot to sort of the great migration South, which she has happened around the 1100s, 1200s, um, into the Valley of Mexico. You know, that is a very sort of a trip that's indigenous to the people who naturally inhabit this land. And so it's interesting how she's sort of drawing this kind of a spiritual element uh, or a spiritual history of the concept of Aslan, which uh, if you're not familiar with the concept of Aslan, and we sort of talked about it maybe in uh, maybe in a little bit in Natalie Diaz, uh, it's this idea that, you know, Texas, what is today Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, all the way up to like Wyoming, California, all of that was the spiritual and ancestral homeland of what is today the Aztecs, right? The Azte what we know is the Aztecs, those tribes, um, which are a bunch of tribes, right? Uh, that are sort of uh, put together, um, but descendants of the Cochise people. And the Aztecs, the Aztecans, you know, the, the, the Aztecs sort of like started in this place and then moved south, right? Into the Valley of Mexico. And she's saying this sort of migration back north is, uh, you know, what is perceived as a sort of a reconquista, this sort of like a reconquering uh, or a slow, a slow, she sort of talks about it in the terms of Reagan, a slow migration or a reconquering of the land or a, a silent invasion, I think is what she says. Uh, and in what Reagan calls it, um, is really just a moving back, a migration back to our ancestral homelands, right? Um, we were here first. We've always been here as, as historical records show, right? Um, uh, the oldest settlements are, are sort of uh, are here in North America, right? And, and the, we're the direct descendants of the people who are in the Valley of Mexico. So she's saying this land is historically ours. We we migrated south, and now we're coming back, right? Uh, but she's also drawing this sort of um, this sort of uh, projecting this idea on uh, America writ large and its American letters and 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 uh, the concept of America as something that started east and went west, right? The great, she's, she doesn't come out and directly contest it, but what she's doing is she's contesting this idea of like manifest destiny, saying that, oh, culture or life in America as we knew it started in the east coast by England and then went west 
that's not, you know, she's saying that's that's actually not true because the oldest parts of America started in the Southwest, right? Uh, and so, you know, this culture, right, this third culture um, has roots in, in, in the oldest, in the, in the direct center of what America was and the direct center of, um, you know, the Southwest that were the ancest ancestral lands of this sort of Aztecan or Udo-Aztecan um, empire that started in what is, you know, today, you know, California, Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, and then moved south. So I want to I want to start with um, she has this beautiful poem that um, that we might read. It's got some great images in there, but I want to start on page twenty five here, where at the bottom of she says the U S Mexico border is una herida abierta, sort of like an open wound, where the third world grates against the first and bleeds, and before a scab forms, it hemorrhages again the lifeblood of two worlds emerging to form a third country, a border culture. Borders are set up to define the places that are safe and unsafe, to distinguish us from them. A border is a dividing line, a narrowing strip along a steep edge. A borderland is a vague and undetermined place created by the emotional residue of an unnatural boundary. It is in constant state of transition. The prohibited and forbidden are its inhabitants. Los atravesados live here, the squint-eyed, the perverse, the queer, the troublesome, the mongrel, the mulatto, the half-breed, the half-dead. In short, those who cross over, pass over, or go through the confines of the normal. Gringos in the U.S. Southwest consider the inhabitants of the borderlands transgressors, aliens. Whether they possess documents or not, whether they're Chicanos, Indians, or Blacks, do not enter, trespassers will be raped, maimed, strangled, gas, shot. The only, quote, legitimate inhabitants are those in power, the whites, and those who align themselves with the whites. Tension grips the inhabitants of the borderlands like a virus. Ambivalence and unrest reside there, and death is no stranger. I think about this, too, in the context of colonialism, where she says, you know, there's a sort of, like, demanding of a side, right? You can really see the sort of uh, echoes of Cabeza de Vaca uh, in here. Uh, where she's talking about, you know, there's so much about Cabeza de Vaca that was sort of saying, you know, it, us and them, Christians and indigenous people. Uh, and even though there was a sort of mestizaje going on there, you know, Cabeza de Vaca didn't quite have an uh, idea of what that was. Um, but what she's saying is she's sort of point, putting a center onto this third, this third culture, uh, this Napantla, right? And saying there is something... Uh, you know, a new here. It's it's a border is an open wound, right? It's a space of of trauma, and she's grounding us in that concept of it being a space of trauma, but can also be a radical space of growth. But it's a directly, uh, it's a direct fabrication. She says of the people who need that line. Why is it that we need to fit into these binaries, left and right, straight or gay, um, indigenous or 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 white, uh, and and is it a privilege, right, to be on the right side of that line? Um, I think she's sort of arguing that, you know, it, that it is a sort of a, you know, the people who have a lot to gain from from these lines are the people who ally themselves on the right side of the line. She's like, uh, she says whites and the people who sort of like aspire to whiteness, I think she says, or um, align themselves with whites. The tension grips the inhabitants of the borderlands like a virus. If we go to the bottom of page 26, she says, 
During the original peopling of the Americas, the first inhabitants migrated across the Bering Straits and walked south across the continent. The oldest evidence of humankind in the U.S., the Chicanos' ancient Indian ancestors, was found in Texas, has been dated to 35,000 B.C. in the southwest United States. Archaeologists have found 20,000-year-old campsites of the Indians who migrated through or permanently occupied the southwest Atzlan, land of the herons, land of the whiteness, the Edenic place of origin of the Azteca, right? What she's, what she's doing here is saying, you know, is, is directly contesting this idea of borders and saying that, you know, these were things that were put onto us. These are yokes that are put onto us by colonial powers. Originally, we were people that had always crossed, you know, every river, every, the entire continent, right? We are a migrating people. And so, uh, it really sets up this sort of like this next section where on page 27, she says, at the beginning of the 16th century, the Spaniards and Hernan Cortes invaded Mexico and with the help of tribes that the Aztecs had subjugated, conquered it. Before the conquest, there were 25 million Indian people in Mexico and the Yucatan. Immediately after the conquest, the Indian population had been reduced to over 7 million. By 1650, only 1.5 million pure-blooded Indians remained. The mestizos, who were genetically equipped to survive smallpox, measles, and typhus, old-world diseases to which the natives had no uh, immunity, founded a new hybrid race and inherited Central and South America. In 1521, nació una nueva raza, el mestizo de México, or mestizo, el mexicano, people of mixed Indian and Spanish blood. Uh, and it's interesting that she puts the roots of the of the identity of Mexicanness on this on this idea that. Um, before it was Mexican, it was Aztecan, but then she goes to the next generation and says, this conquest was the first drawing of the line, the line between us, between indigenous and colonial, right? This is a sort of like Hernán Cortés uh, slash, you know, Cabeza de Vaca part of the, of the book. Uh, and both of those guys were contemporaries, right? Cabeza de Vaca, actually Hernán Cortés did enslave Cabeza de Vaca uh, at, at one point. Uh, Cabeza de Vaca was enslaved in Mexico City uh, for a little bit, as we talked about in that book. Um, but what she's what she's doing here, uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, is she's saying this is the origins of this line, and and the line never quite escapes us. Uh, we can draw that line all the way into, uh, you know, the Mexican uh, uh, sort of Santa Ana battle, you know, for the Alamo and battle for Texas independence, and what she talks about sort of the racist ideology that spurred uh that that uh that event uh, we know now you know be, historians have have you know studied this um uh really to kingdom come man it's it's been really well analyzed that before the alamo even took place right before 1836 like as early as like late 1700s early 1800s texans were trying to start republics in texas or Texans, whites from the East Coast who were moving to Texas were trying to start their own independent republics. So these were wealthy guys who would buy a bunch of land from the Mexican government. Uh, the Mexican government liked it because, one, it needed money at the time. Uh, not too long before, and we're talking like 1810, it had just declared independence from Spain, right? So it was cash-strapped. It had large swaths of territory that needed uh, managing, that needed to be sort of, uh, you know, needed needed some juice, needed some influx of cash and influx of settlers in Texas was one of those places, was a really undesirable place 
uh, in early 19th century Mexico because um, if you look at the sort of map of indigenous people who were there, it was the the Comanches, uh, the Karankawa, the uh, the Apaches out to the to the northwest, um, and so you see this sort of like really fierce Indian tribes that you know imagine trying to settle there. Uh, and there, there were a few people who, who tried to, uh, there's one really macabre, um, story. I'm thinking of North Austin here. I think it's, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the exact, it's North of, it's in Cedar Park today, but it was, it was, it was one of these things where this guy came from like Cincinnati or something, settled with his family, uh, bought a plot of land, settled with his family in, in North Austin, what is today North Austin, uh, and was instantly just uh, invaded by, uh, uh, I mean, just, uh, the surrounding Comancheria, the, the Comanche tribes. Uh, and it was a massacre. They just massacred, um, them. And it started sort of catalyzed the Comanche wars, uh, between, uh, uh, sort of troops in that area and, uh, and, and white settlers, uh, and, uh, the Comanche people. Anyway, this is neither here nor there. This is all to say, that it was a tough place to uh, to live at that time. It was a tough place to uh, inhabit, and so uh, nascent Mexico, right, uh, uh, the country of Mexico at that point, declared independence from Spain, really wanted to sell these lands. And there were so many opportunists in in the East Coast of the United States who, before they even sought to declare independence, already had these arguments about why Texas was a land that should be taken away from these quote inferior people or these mongrels or these whatever, right? And all this sort of racist ideology around why they should take Texas, and so it would happen that they would go and start these fake republics. They would buy like you know 120,000 acres of land, start a republic of Texas or something, and the Mexican government would have to go and squash it and, and kick them off the land, right? Uh, among other things, you know, at this time slavery was outlawed in Mexico, and so much of what the white settlers were trying to do was sort of like enact what they wanted to do was to bring slavery into Texas so that they could force another balance, you know, you could, if you open up another state, the balance between slave states and non-slave states in the Senate, uh, of the United States of America would be, um, more imbalanced in the favor of, of slaveholders. Right. And so there was a lot of pressure from Southern slaveholders to sort of open up another slave state in Texas. This is neither here nor there. This is all to say that the origins of white settler colonialism in Texas, uh, was a racist, uh, and, and, uh, sort of a colonizing enterprise, right? And I think Gloria Anzaldúa sort of draws a line from Hernán Cortés all the way into this moment uh, from Texas to Texas. And then she talks about sort of the Mexican-American War, which happened shortly thereafter in 1846, um, and talks again about how so, so much of that land was taken, right? Uh, and that's where the border as we know it today um, stands, right? That's that sort of like along the Rio Grande. That was, uh, um, I believe it was... No, the Treaty of, I believe it was the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. I have to go check that. I'm not a historian. Um, but this is all to say um, that that border became not only an ideological thing, but a geographical marker uh, and a kind of spiritual marker within itself. That that Napantla, this idea of a, of a thirdness, uh, she calls it a shock culture, a border culture. Let me see if I can find that section. Where she says, um, yeah, here on page 33, um, I'll just go ahead and read it. We have a tradition of migration, a tradition of long walks. Today we are witnessing 
la migración de los pueblos mexicanos, the return odyssey to the historical mythological Aslan. This time, the traffic is from south to north. So again, she's linking that sort of like migration of Aslan as a sort of like a, that's our historical grounds. Those are historical, um, you know, we belong to that place, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Uh, this this coming back is not a reconquista or a sort of a, um, a silent invasion, but it's a uh, it's a return to the homeland, right? Um, El retorno to the promised land first began with the Indians from the interior of Mexico and the mestizos that came with the conquistadores in the 1500s. Immigration continued in the next three centuries, and in this century, it continued with the braceros who helped to build our railroads and who picked our fruit. Today, thousands of Mexicans are crossing the border legally and illegally. Ten million people without documents have returned to the Southwest. Faceless, nameless, invisible, taunted with, hey, cucaracho, cockroach, trembling with fear, yet filled with courage, a courage born of desperation, barefoot and uneducated, Mexicans with hands like boot soles gather at night by the river where two worlds merge, creating what Reagan calls a front line, a war zone. So what she's doing here, she's echoing that ideology, which is, at this time, this book is published in the 80s, right? A very contemporary, to drawing a link between this and the Mexican-American war, a war zone, a front line, drawing a line between that and the invasion of Texas, drawing a line between that and colonialism, and looking forward, drawing a line between that and the corporations that colonized the land agriculturally within South Texas and the Rio Grande Valley. Um, it's an interesting way in which she's talks about sort of like, or reconceptualizes our our idea of colonialism, not as something that happened in the past, but as something that is continually ongoing, something that is like in the very, you know, agriculture and the very sort of irrigation of the fields uh, that she used to play in, that she used to hunt snakes in, uh, latent within the sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's in the foods we eat, right? You know, colonialism continues under a different name. Uh, in a way, in thinking about it, uh, and especially I think about a lot of Cabeza de Vaca and that sort of um, connective tissue is when we looked at that narrative, we we talked so much about God, gold, and glory, right? Um, and we could look at these corporations and, and, and argue the same if we replaced God with a secular dollar, right? And we replace glory with sort of stock profits and we replace gold with actual money, right? Uh, the corporate is, corporations are are sort of in these ag corporations that she's talking of. Uh, she talks about not just ag corporations, but the maquilas, right? The maquiladoras, these uh, factories operating on both the north and south side of Mexico. I'm not sure if you guys know the history of that, but um, maquiladoras were, were, they really proliferated around the 90s, uh, during which uh, at that time it was Clinton and I think it was uh, Salinas Gortari in Mexico and I'm forgetting the Canadian president signed a pact, uh, the North American Free Trade Act. And the North American Free Trade Act, what it did was um, it said the movement of goods can move between all those countries without tariffs, right? Without taxes, right? Um, and that's good because a product made in Mexico um, can travel to the United States and become sold in the United States, vice versa. Product made in the United States can be sold in Mexico uh, with no tariffs. Uh, and so it seemed like a really good deal. But what ended up happening is it was a disaster for um, like Mexican farmers, for an example. Uh, the most famous example is like, you know, these these dairy farmers who 
if you are a dairy farmer in, say, Guadalajara, and you can sell your gallon of milk for $2.50 a gallon, uh, but the farmer from Iowa is producing that same gallon of milk, but because he's subsidized by the United States government, we have, I think, USDA, um, U.S. Department of Agricultural Subsidies, right, that support these farmers and support, you know, that's how they keep uh, the prices stabilized. And that came out from the 1930s, from you know, the New Deal and all this stuff. There's a lot of uh, – the United States used to be very agricultural back in the day. Still is, um, but that was that was a major part of the economy. For those reasons, we have subsidies. But say because of those subsidies, right, the government is paying these farmers, uh, whether the price is high or whether the price is low, uh, so they can sort of absorb the shock, shocks from the market. Say that that guy in Iowa who's producing – that same gallon of milk can sell it for $2.30, right? But he can sell it in Mexico tariff-free. So he's sending all that milk all the way to Mexico, and the Mexican farmer can't compete because he's selling it at $2.50 a gallon, and the American farmer is selling it at like $2.30 a gallon. And so what's happening here is the, the opening the gates of trade puts so many Mexican farmers out of work, hits the dairy industry particularly hard. Uh, but another thing that happens is... Um, like Chevrolet and uh, I remember Sunbeam that um, that electronics and sort of they make like toasters and stuff like that. Um, you know they ended up sort of building these big factories on the Mexican side of the border because if you can build something in Mexico for cheap and then import it to the United States for nothing, um, you know you can maximize profit. And so like that's why you know you can see a Chevy Tahoe that was designed in Detroit but was put together in Mexico because they can pay Mexican workers less uh, and they can re-import it in the United States uh, without tariffs. You know, they can, they can increase the price, their, their advantage for, you know, they can leverage that to, to increase profit, right. Uh, per car sold. Um, and so it's, it's one of these things that um, there was the culture of maquilas, right. And she's talking about sort of like uh, how that is like sort of a new colonizing force it's creating this sort of these these new problems in Mexico that are eerily similar to the problems we had under colonialism, and so she's drawing a lot of connected tissue between, um, you know, the destruction or the introduction of disease of typhus of old world diseases uh, with within the indigenous societies when they came here, and, and the kind of psychological mental, you know, breakdowns around dignity and stuff that are being per, uh, perpetuated by these companies. So she's saying these are colonial forces, right? Um, if we go to, let me see. If we go to page 34, for example, it's, and then we'll end here with, uh, with um, this, and I'll sort of give a summary of, of, of my thoughts on, on chapter one. She says, she, she sort of ties it back to the Mexican woman, which I think is sort of an, an interesting way in which she lands this. Um, bottom of page 34, she says, um, the Mexican woman is especially at risk. Often the coyote smuggler doesn't feed her for days or let her go to the bathroom. Often he rapes her or sells her into prostitution. She cannot call on county or state health or economic resources because she doesn't know English and she fears deportation. American employers are quick to take advantage of her helplessness. She can't go home. She sold her house, her furniture, borrowed from friends in order to pay the coyote who charges her four or $5,000 to smuggle her to Chicago. She may work as a live-in maid for a white Chicano or Latino household for as little as $15 a week. 
or work in the garment industry, do hotel work, isolated and worried about her family back home, afraid of getting caught and deported, living with as many as 15 people in one room. The Mexicana suffers serious health problems. Se enferma de los nervios, alta presión. She gets sick from, from her nerves, from high blood pressure. La mojada, la mujer indocumentada, so um, it's sort of a, a derogatory word for an indoc undocumented person, is doubly threatened in this country. Not only does she have to contend with sexual violence, but like all women, she's prey to a sense of physical helplessness. As a refugee, she leaves the familiar and safe home ground to venture into unknown and possibly dangerous terrain. This is her home, this thin edge of barbed wire. It's interesting because I think you know she draws it full circle and, and to this idea that like the spoils of colonialism, the spoils of war, um, often these sort of heridas abiertas, right? These wounds that are sort of open. Uh, she 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 draws a parallel between the, the image of the barbed wire and that open wound. Uh, colonialism is the is the barbed wire. The open wound is the space in which we inhabit. Um, but so much of the pressure of of society. Um, to heal these wounds, I think she's saying is placed on 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 women, right? And she she links that sort of like the maquila culture and to sort of the the oppression of it, uh, and also sort of like this this necessity to go north uh, on women. But you know that the labor that is put on these women to close these wounds, uh, that home that she lives on, this barbed wire, right, is a really interesting image, uh, and it's worth it's it's one that's worth unpacking, right? Um, I think two of like an open wound and the barbed wire uh, is sort of like two puzzles to the same piece, but it's, um, it's this thing, you know, she lives on this wire. Um, it's a really haunting image. I think, I think this piece overall as a, the first chapter really sets the tone for, um, for the book, right? Um, it really concisely, in just a few pages, gives us an origin story about not only Chicanos uh, and and sort of the identity of what it means to be Chicano, um, and it gives us sort of the the pain of that too, right? And the historical arcs of that pain. It's something that I feel hasn't been talked about a lot, but um, in a sense, what she's saying is we are the products of historical circumstance. To sort of draw it back to the preface where she says, you know, this is an extension, this is a bridge, I expect you to meet us halfway. Um, that you shouldn't have to apologize for the language. You shouldn't have to apologize for, for pochoness or for non-pochoness or for code switching between languages. She does that a lot, right? Uh, to code switch means to just shift between English and Spanish a lot. Um, what she's saying is there, this bridge is, is something that is, has been constructed over really the imperial of the Enlightenment, and we're the products of that thing. Uh, we're the products of our historical circumstances, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that edge, that wire is, is our home, but it's, it's, it's our home by circumstance, not out of sort of, I don't know, through no fault of our own, right? Um, but I think what she's saying, too, is, is that um, she's grounding us in this sort of... Uh, if there is a comfort, if it is a cold comfort here, it's that, you know, we have, this land is something that colonialism happened to this land, but it's also something that we are also the products of this land. And we are the products of that history. And moving forward, you know, 
like we also belong to this place, right? Um, and that open wound is really sort of uh, colonialism saying you don't belong, you belong on one side of the binary or the other, uh, but us sort of maintaining our space and say, no, we belong in the third place, in the Napantla, right? Um, I think it's a good way to close out that, um, close out that section uh, and then get to chapter two, which is Movimientos de Rebeldía y las Culturas que Traicionan. Okay, so if we go into section, sorry, chapter two, um, most of this is about all of it, really, is, is jumping from that point of, uh, you know, the woman as not only the pressures that are put on women, but also the way in which colonialism has influenced a kind of, um, a kind of patriarchy or has put in place a kind of patriarchy um, that women uh, and Chicanas must navigate. And she's talking about essentially the oppressive nature of uh, of uh, those systems, right? Um, if we start from from the bottom of page two, the strength of my rebellion. Well, first, before I start, I should maybe draw an arc through uh, through what's going on here. Um, this chapter is a seminal chapter because not only uh, is it sort of directly linking the patriarchy and colonialism uh, and sort of the Chicano identity. Uh, but what she's doing here too, is she's talking about how, um, how sort of coming out is an, is a, is a sort of a kind of violence. It's all, it's part of that sort of that Napantla, right? It's part of that sort of identity, that two spiritness is part of being, um, is a part of this sort of third culture. And she's, she's launching from this idea of Napantla, this in-between, this, this third culture, and going into uh, what it means to be a, a queer woman and what it means to come out. Uh, the concept of, of homophobia, um, uh, which she sort of like, she plays on that word. Um, she said she had mentored a student in New England who thought that that word just meant a fear of going home. And she says, how apt, right? <laughs> and it, there's a sort of like fear of being abandoned by one's mother, of, of being sort of like... Uh, and then sort of in that vein, she links it to La Chingada, which is, uh, La Chingada is, 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 you know, the, the sort of linked to La Malinche, the person who sold out Mexico to Cortez and sort of helped Cortez conquer Mexico, uh, which is one of the, the chief insults of, of Mexican culture, La Chingada, right? La Malinche, the sellout. It's deeper than like, a, like an Uncle Tom or like a Tio Taco. It's, it's. It's something that's at once, um, at once, very commonplace, but also extremely uh, pejorative uh, and and uh, engendered in a way that's, uh, she says, sort of is a keyhole into the way in which the colonial mind and, and the patriarchy works. Right. When I talk about the patriarchy, by the way, I'm talking about sort of like a male-dominated culture. Um, and she 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 talks about that, and she talks about the frustrations with that. If we go to the bottom of page two, she says, "The strengths of my rebellion." I have a vivid memory of an old photograph. I am six years old. I stand between my father and mother, head cocked to the right, the toes of my flat feet gripping the ground. I hold my mother's hand. To this day, I'm not sure where I found the strength to leave the source. The mother, disengaged from my family, mi tierra, mi gente, and all that picture stood for. 
I had to leave home so I could find myself, find my own intrinsic nature buried under the personality that had been imposed on me, right? This culture, this thing, you're not necessarily talking about the Chicano culture, but this patriarchal culture that had been imposed on her, these sets of expectations. Um, the, the, the graph that sort of preambles all this, it's, it's mostly in Spanish and I won't read it all, but I, I want to sort of get at this. She talks about this sort of like rage that if there's anything that feeds my rage is being told what to do. You must do this and you must do that. And you must be this kind of person and, um, you must, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And Lorian Zaldúa talks about this in the, in that opening graph, how beneath the sort of like the calm facade of her face, right? There's a sort of rage that's about to explode, right? Um, and so much of it comes from, I think, a patriarchal system not being able to give her what she knew she deserved and what she knew um, a pathway to become the person which she knew she always could become or will would become. Um, it's for these reasons that she had to leave, right? She talks about she's the first person in six generations to leave uh, her home and to go... And she talks about teaching in New England. Um, and it's one of these things that that is 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 there's a there's a tremendous sadness there too. Um, something that immediately comes out to me is this connection to the land. You know, she preambles the book with Atlan, and she preambles the book with um, you know, this connection to the land, the historic land of of the Atlan. But but what does it mean to exist in your homeland and at the same time for it to be a toxic environment for you? And so she takes that idea of a homeland where there's a mythology of a homeland as like a utopia and really turns it on its head and says, well, yes, it is a, it is our homeland, but at the same time, there are still things we need to break down ideologically. Uh, and the way in which we can, one one pathway in which we can see this, in which we can sort of throw off the yoke of the oppressor, of, of the colonizer, uh, is to look at what are the colon the ways in which they've colonized our mind? Uh, I should say, the patriarchy, the uh, these sort of like paternal tropes. She talks about this need to protect women, this the rebozo, la gorra, which is like the hat. The rebozo is sort of like the shawl that one uh, women often wear around their shoulders, and this idea of she's like these are like protective things, right? Uh, but they're elements that we we use. She talks about religion, right? Particularly the the church as sort of a, a force. Um, that sort of reinforces uh, a lot of these things uh, or these tropes that are like, you know, that that women are there to serve men in, in some respects or they're subservient to men. Um, and so what she's saying, you know, she, in, she she talks about this in sort of the, the, the section on the bottom of page 38, cultural tyranny, where she says, culture forms our beliefs. I'll just go ahead and read it here. We're, we perceive the version of reality that it communicates Dominant paradigms, predefined concepts that exist as unquestionable, unchallengeable, or untransmitted to us through the culture. Culture is made by those in power, men. Uh, males make the rules and laws. Women's transmit them. How many times have I heard mothers and mothers-in-law tell their sons to beat their wives for not obeying them, for being osiconas, big mouths, for being callejeras, going to visit and gossip with the neighbors, for expecting their husbands to help with the rearing of children and the housework, for wanting to be something other than the housewives. The culture expects women to show greater acceptance of the commitment to the value system than men. Uh, 
Yeah, a greater acceptance of and commitment to the value system of men. The culture and the church insist the women are subservient to males. If women, uh, if a woman rebels, she is a mujer mala. If a woman doesn't renounce herself in favor of the male, she is selfish. If a woman remains a virgin uh, until she marries, she is a good woman. For a woman of my culture, there used to be only three directions she could turn. To the church as a nun, to the streets as a prostitute, or to the home as a mother. Today, some of us have a fourth choice, entering the world by way of education and career and becoming self-autonomous persons. A very few of us, as a working class people, our chief activity is to put food in our mouths, a roof over our heads and clothes on our back. Educating our children is out of reach for most of us. Educated or not, the onus is still on women to be a wife, mother. Only the nun can escape motherhood. Women are made to feel total failures if they don't marry and have children. ¿Y cuando te casas, Gloria? ¿Se te va a pasar el tren? Y yo les digo, pues, si me caso, no va a ser con un hombre. They're saying, like, if you don't get married, you're not going to be able to have children. She says, well, if I get married, I'm going to have, uh, I'm not going to marry a man. Se quedan calladitas. They, they're quiet. Si hoy, hija de la chingada. Oh, si, soy hija de la chingada. Yes, I am the, the daughter of, you know, la chingada, which is la malinche. I've always been her daughter. No te chingado, right? Um, you know, she's saying just like solidifying this idea. I am, you know, she's taking empowerment in this slur, right? To be to, to be hija de la chingada, to be part of you know like the, of the lineage of uh, lineage of la malinche, to be a sellout, right? In a way, it's interesting because la malinche is such a, a hated figure uh, within Mexican culture, like hija de la chingada, right? But at the same time, she's taking it as a tool of empowerment and saying, well, you know, this is someone who was so, so subversive that she was able to use the patriarchy to her advantage, right? It's a kind of um, a liberation praxis. Uh, what I mean by that is sort of she's able to use the tools at her disposal to gain her liberation. And there is some of that, that that's in Gloria Anzaldúa, right? Where she says, I use the tools at my disposal. I used, she's like, I was painting and I was, I was, uh, you know, writing and I was reading a lot and I was doing all these things and people call me lazy. But those were the things that ultimately gave me liberation. Those were the things that allowed me to encounter, you know, other, uh, you know, um, LGBTQ plus people in, in the East Coast uh, and mentor LGBTQ students, right, in the East Coast. Um, I like this idea. I want to go to the page, um, it's 41, half and half, where she says, there was a muchacha who lived near my house. La gente del pueblo talked about her being una de las otras, of the others. They said that for six months she was a woman who had a vagina that bled once a month, and that for the other six months she was a man, had a penis and she peed standing up. They called her half and half, mitad y mitad. Neither one nor the other, but a strange doubling, a deviation of nature that horrified, a work of nature inverted. But there is a magic aspect in abnormality, in so-called deformity, maimed, mad, and sexually different people were believed to possess supernatural powers by primal cultures, magico religious thinking. For them, abnormality was the price a person had to pay for her or his inborn extraordinary gifts. Right? This links back to that sort of idea of like uh, two-spirit, right? That we talked about in Cabeza de Vaca. There is something compelling about being both male and female, about having an entry into both worlds. Contrary to some psychiatric tenets, half and halves are not suffering from a confusion of sexual identity or even from a confusion of gender. What we are suffering from is an absolute, despot duality that says 
we are able to be only one or the other. It claims that human nature is limited and cannot evolve into something better. But I, like the other queer people, am two in one body, both male and female. I am the embodiment of the hierros gamos, the coming together of opposite qualities within. It's interesting because she's, she uses, this is a, a space in which she not only comes out to the reader, which is a really powerful moment, um, and she comes out in a few spot, spots, but I feel like this is one of the most poignant ones. Um, but she also provides a way in which um, she's talking about two-spiritedness or sort of the gamo, she calls it, sort of coming together of two opposite forces can forge a third way, a sort of evolution of character um, that is at once spiritual, but also sort of uh, a way forward. And it's a way in which I, I love this chapter because it really takes Gloria Anzaldúa and boils her down into a, a person, right? Um, she's theorizing as well, like she's going on, but she's showing us rather than telling us a theory. It's one thing to sort of intellectually internalize uh, the things she's talking about, uh, sort of Nepantlera or or Hierros Gamos or any of the sort of uh, the shock culture, border culture, third culture, that kind of, that thirdness. Um, but it's another facet of the argument she opens up for the culture at large. Uh, the people who fall on either sides or buy into either sides of the binary to say not only is your thirdness uh, uh, acceptable and it's 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 a form of power, uh, but it's a way forward, right? It's a way in which you can uh, throw off the yoke of the colonizer and move forward into a, another space. And so that thirdness becomes um, something that she she roots in her in her lesbian identity, but it becomes something that can be sort of projected onto the Chicano culture at large. And that's um, that's a really powerful moment in the book. Um, uh, still, though, she says it gets complicated because, you know, with the next section, we see homophobia. And she talks about this fear of being outcast from society. It's, it's not a clean cut thing. Yes, it is the path forward, but we lose something. And that deformity is something that's really in, in, intriguing. Uh, she talks about sort of like being... Um, you know, this figure being, you know, half man, half woman, or and that deformity is the price that we pay for being sort of evolved in another way. Um, but what does it mean to evolve? What do we lose when we evolve? And in that homecoming, she talks about this sort of fear of home, and this fear of what she's lost. I think so many of us feel that way too, right? I think about that particularly with education, to take a step back for a moment. Um, talk about like being first gen and first gen in college, and like, am I, am I getting too educated for my people? Right? Or am I getting too, um, am I losing touch with my identity or with my culture or with the things that give me joy or those kinds of things? And education is transformative, but what is the price that we pay, right? Uh, and I think, you know, overall, Gloria Enzaldúa talks about education, and it is a liberation praxis, right? Um, but what does it mean to leave home? There is a, a kind of pain there, Right. There's a kind of evolution that takes place as we reach into a third part of ourselves and become the future, not just the past or the the, the present, but the sort of kind of future that we always knew that we could be or maximizing our potential. What is that, right? What is that pain that we feel? What is this anxiety? Um, uh, I know this day, too, as a writer, I still feel it, right? Uh, am I getting too famous or something? Not that I'm that famous or anything, but like um, for my own community or do I, do people lose, do I have, have I lost touch with the people that most matter to me? Am I too busy? That kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, 
it's interesting because she says, you know, the pain of growth is, is, is the pain of moving on. Uh, and I, I think that's a core tenant of, of homecoming. I want to end this by talking about this section. It's kind of a long one where she talks about my Chicana identity. It's on page 43. My Chicana identity is grounded in the Indian woman's history of resistance. The Aztec female rights of mourning were rights of defiance, protesting the cultural changes which disrupted the equality and balance between female and male, and protesting their demotion to a lesser status, their denigration. Like La Llorona, the Indian woman's only means of protest was wailing. So, mamá, raza, how wonderful, no tener que rendir cuentas a nadie. I feel perfectly free to rebel and to rail against my culture. I fear no betrayal on my part because, unlike Chicanas and other women of color who grew up white and who have only uh, recently returned to their native uh, cultural roots, I was totally immersed in mine. It wasn't until I went to high school that I, quote, saw whites. Until I worked on my master's degree, I had not gotten within arm's distance of them. I was totally immersed in lo mexicano, a rural peasant isolated mexicanismo to separate from my culture as from my family. I had to feel competent enough to the outside and secure enough inside to live life on my own. Yet on leaving home, I did not lose touch with my origins. Because lo mexicano is in my system. I am a turtle. Wherever I go, I carry home on my back. Not me sold out my people, but they me. Think of that statement, right? Not me sold out my people, but they me. So yes, though home, quote, uh, permeates every sinew and cartilage in my body, I too am afraid of going home. Though I'll defend my race and culture when they are attacked by non-Mexicanos, conozco el malestar de mi cultura. I abhor some of my culture's ways, how it cripples its women, como burras, our strength used against us, lowly, burras mean humility, bearing humility with dignity. The ability to serve, claim the males is our highest virtue. I abhor how my culture makes macho characters of its men. No, I do not buy all the myths of the tribe into which I was born. I can understand why the more tinged uh, with Anglo blood, the more adamantly my, col my colored and colorless sisters glorify their colored culture's values. Think of that. I can understand why the more tinged with Anglo blood, the more adamantly my colored and colorless sisters glorified their culture's values to offset the extreme devaluation of it by the white culture. Think of that, right? To offset the extreme devaluation of it by the white culture. As you grow further and distant from your culture, right? And she's saying this is different than abandoning one's culture to grow into a third culture. But as you let it, as you become sort of um, assimilated, you know, to offset the extreme devaluation of it by the white culture, you have to reclaim it fiercely with a ferocity that is sort of like unnatural, she says. It's a legitimate reaction. But I will not glorify those aspects of my culture which have injured me and which have injured me in the name of protecting me. So don't give me your tenets and your laws. Don't give me your lukewarm gods. What I want is an accounting with all three cultures, white, Mexican, Indian. I want the freedom to carve and chisel my own face, to staunch the bleeding with ashes, to fashion my own gods out of my entrails. And if going home is denied me, then I will have to stand and claim my space, making a new culture 
a una cultura mestiza with my own lumber, my own bricks and mortar, and my own feminist architecture. Wow. Kind of a powerful piece right there. Where she's saying, like, as I move into this thirdness, that I should, you know, I am the turtle. I can sort of, I can make my home anywhere. My stuff is with me. Uh, and it's an interesting part of not only, you know, we boil this into sort of the way in which it inflects Chicano identity, the idea that you can borrow from all the cultures, from the indigenous, from the Anglo, from the Mexican, uh, the Chicano, right? There, that you can, you can have a blending of all of them, right? Uh, though there is an impoverishment that happens as sort of you assimilate into a white culture. Um, not that there's sort of like, you know, white, white culture in the white language, sort of like English as, as sort of a language that's predominantly among whites, right? It's a colonizing tool. It colonizes the mind, the ways in which we very think, right? Um, and so she's talking about this as a, you know, it, it is, if you think about the idea that you can claim that space and build it with your own mortar and tools and fashion your own gods and create your own things, this, this, this book is kind of a manifestation of that, uh, it's in both English and Spanish. It borrows from indigenous traditions. It borrows from spirituality. It borrows from lo mexicano. It borrows, it's written in English it's in the colonized language, right? Not that Spanish isn't, right? It's also a colonizer's language. We have cabeza de vaca after all. Um, but she's picking and choosing from every culture. And she's saying, you know, I can create my own home here. And stylistically, it's kind of an interesting artifact of this book. Um, yeah. That uh, it's, it's, I think of this book as not just, um, not just an essay collection, but almost like a um, a lyric essay of sorts, right? Or a bunch of lyric essays put together. A lyric essay is just a long, extended essay. It has an argument and everything. And each of these pieces have arguments, uh, but around a very lyrical sort of form of being, right? She has poetry in here. She has uh, small tidbits of, of, of knowledge that she just drops on us. Um, I'm going to end with the, the last part, the woundings of the India Mestiza. Estas carnes indias que depreciamos nosotros los mexicanos, así como despreciamos, condenamos a nuestra madre, Malinali. Nos condenamos a nosotros mismos, esta raza vencida, enemigo cuerpo. Not me sold out, my people, but they, me. Malinali, Tenepat, or Malinzin, has become known as la chingada, the fucked one. She's become the bad word that passes a dozen times uh, a day from the lips of Chicanos. Whore, prostitute, the woman who sold out her people to the Spaniards, are epithets Chicanos spit out with contempt. The worst kind of betrayal lies in making us believe that the Indian woman is in, woman in us is the betrayer. We, Indias y Mestizas, police the Indian in us, brutalize and condemn her. Male culture has done a good job on us. Son las costumbres que traicionan. Uh, traicionan. I can never say that word. Uh, la India en, mis, en mí es la sombra, la chingada. Tlazoteotl, Cuatlecu. Son ellas que oíamos lamentado a sus hijas perdidas. Not me sold out my people, but they me. Because of the color of my skin, they betrayed me. The dark-skinned woman has been silenced, gagged, caged, bound into servitude with marriage bludgeoned for 300 years, sterilized and castrated in the 20th century. For 300 years, she has been a slave, a force of cheap labor, labor colonized by the Spaniard, the Anglo, by her own people, and in Mesoamerica, her lot under the Indian patriarchs was not free of wounding. For 300 years, she was invisible. She was not heard. 
Many times she wished to speak, to act, to protest, to challenge. The odds were heavily against her. She hid her feelings. She hid her truths. She concealed her fire, but she kept stoking the inner flame. She remained faceless and voiceless, but a light shone through her veil of silence. And though she was unable to spread her limbs, and though for her right now the sun has sunk under the earth and there is no moon, she continues to tend the flame. The spirit of the fire spurs her to fight for her own skin and a piece of ground to stand on, a ground from which to view the world, a perspective, a home ground, where she can plumb the rich ancestral roots into her own ample Mestiza heart. She waits till the waters are not so turbulent and the mountains not so slippery with sleet. Battered and bruised, she waits, her bruises throwing her back upon herself and the rhythmic pulses of the feminine. Cuatlepeo waits with her. Aquí en la soledad prospera su rebeldía. En la soledad ella prospera. In solitude, she prospers, right? Uh, her rebellion prospers. Uh, it's interesting to think of patriarchy as a manifestation of, uh, of white supremacy even, right? Of colonial powers. Though she even does, she complicates it a little by saying, you know, I want to also bring to me, she talks about like, you know, I want to reckon with, you know, the Indian, the Mexican, and the Anglo. Um, but she talks about some of the, uh, some of the patriarchal elements too, like La Malinche, the idea of La Malinche is, is a, is, is, is an indigenous idea that she had sold us out. And it's interesting how she complicates that. Uh, but then it takes it as a term of empowerment too, right? Um, this woman who is seen as, um, as a traitor is suddenly, you know, a traitor to what? Exactly. I think she's asking. Gloria Anzaldúa is. Who is she a traitor to? Is it all indigenous people or is it to the system that subjugated her? Right? And in which ways can La Malinche become, you know, a symbol of power in some way. Um, she took her future, her destiny into her own hands. Um, and she prospered, you know. It's a really, it's a really controversial bit, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating part of the book. And I think it's something that um, uh, is really timely. So to draw a sort of a, a through line between the two passages or the two chapters we read today, uh, Gloria Anzaldúa essentially talks about our origin stories uh, as Chicanos, as people of this land, and then she complicates it by saying, um, you know, not only did colonialism sort of uh, cleave us in two, right, by drawing an artificial border of our traditional migration lands, um, but she she says that, you know, to leave this land is ultimately necessary, that the homeland isn't a destination, um, but merely a ways and sort of a grounding point, a, a, a spot in which we can ground ourselves in who we are as a people, but then move forward into a kind of thirdness, right? Um, a, a path forward. Um, she used her own example as sort of uh, her journey of coming out uh, as, a, as, as an LGBTQ person, uh, as a sort of thirdness, as a path toward revolution. Um, but she says that path is not easy and it's, it is not painless. Um, but ultimately, as an individual journey, it was, it was a path toward prospering, right? And so it's a, it's a really intriguing sort of uh, and powerful way to open up this collection, uh, which is kind of cool. A lyric or two lyric essays of sorts. The whole book is, is, is like lyric essays like this. Um, but anyways, that's what I had for you guys today. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to hit me at penyad at uhd.edu. Uh, also, uh, I'm going to do the second part of our participation grade situation. Um, if you get this, uh, send me an email. Uh, that just says Gloria Anzaldúa, 
um, uh, day one. And then in the body of the email, write, um, give me like your favorite passage from today, like your favorite passage that we read. So uh, hit me an email with Gloria and Zaldua day one uh, in the subject line. And then uh, in the email, hit me with your favorite passage for today. Uh, and I'll take that as the second part of your participation grade. I'm thinking about doing maybe four of these, uh, and that'll comprise all of your participation grade. Okay. Uh, thank you so much.